Our sermon text is found in John chapter 6, verses 27 to 40. If you have a Bible, please turn with me there. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then, then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, who is sufficient for this task of seeing through the Word of God <coughs> the glory of Christ, and then attempting to re-say the Word of God in such a way that others might see and believe and live. These are eternally momentous things. In every service, people stand on the brink of eternity. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And faith is what overcomes the world and rescues souls from perishing and glorifies Christ. So I ask for your sufficiency now. Come. Open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, open the hearts of believers and unbelievers, I pray, to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving, and so one of my desires is that when we are done opening this text concerning the Lord and his invincible work of salvation in our hearts, you might be brimming with gratitude for what he has done and that it would be a trait of your whole life. Christians, I think, should be the humblest and the happiest and the most thankful people in the world because we have been shown how little we deserve and we have been shown how much he has done for us in Christ, and those two things should create the greatest amount of authentic 
gratitude. So if that's not your case right now, if your heart isn't that way, just ask him right now. Ask him, Lord, in the next 30 minutes or so, would you awaken a humility in me, a gratitude in me, a faith in me, a seeing of Jesus through the blurriness of my present vision. Just be, be dealing with the Lord as he speaks. Let me give some summary statements of this text, where we're going. I'm going to give you three, uh, and then we'll walk through it together because Seeing the details of Jesus' words to make the point is way more interesting and way more authoritative than my summary statements. But it might help you figure out where I'm going if I just give you a summary of it. So here's my first way of saying it. Um, There are two units in this passage. Verses 30 to 36... And verses 37 to 40. That's the unit we're going to deal with. The first one, verses 30 to 36, describe God's gift of Jesus to these people and how they do not receive it but lose it. The second unit, verses 37 to 40, Describe God's gift of the people to Jesus and how he receives them and they are kept forever. So the gift of Jesus to the world and the people in the first unit, the gift of a people to Jesus in the second unit. That's one way of describing what we're seeing here. Here's another way. Verses 30 to 36 describes the apparent failure of God sending the Son to give eternal life. It ends in verse 36 with a horrible failure to believe. However, verses 37 to 40 describe an invincible success of God to give eternal life. So that's another way to say it. First unit, apparent failure, unbelief. Second unit, triumphant, invincible work of God to save his own. Here's a third way to say it in summary. There are always two ways of looking at the world. One is to look at the world from the side of man and man's responsibility in response to what God commands or offers. The other is to look at the world from the side of God and God's Sovereign achievement of what he intends to bring about. So, in verses 30 to 36, we are looking at the world from man's side and man's responsibility and God's offer. And verses 37 to 40, we are looking at the world from God's side through the lens of his absolute sovereignty over the process of salvation. So there it is. That's the summary of of the text. And now... Far more interesting is to walk through it together, and it is absolutely crucial, and I've said this before, I'll say it many more times, that you see this for yourself. This is too precious to be based on any man's opinion. Way too precious. Your feet 
must be standing on thus saith the Lord, not thus saith John Piper. Is that clear? So uh, if you don't have a Bible, listen super carefully to when I'm quoting. And if you do, fix your eyes on it a lot. Jesus is talking to the same crowd that followed him across the sea. If you're newer, we've been working our way through this chapter now. This is the fourth week. They followed him across the sea because he filled their stomachs. He says that in verse 26. They're not looking at him as precious. They're looking at him as useful. And he has more to say to them. He directs their attention away from the food that perishes, which they're so interested in, to verse 27, the bread that endures to eternal life. And then in verse 29, he said that the way to, quote, work for this eternal food is to believe. What can we do? What can we do to have the bread, the food, that will take us to eternal life? And his answer is, okay, I'll tell you what, what you should work, how you should work. Here's, here's the way to work. Believe. Believe me. That's verse 29. Now the crowd says in verse 30, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, here's my take on why did they say this? I found this a very strange response in view of their having seen him turn five loaves into enough bread to feed 5,000. Why do they say, what sign do you do? Well, <laughs> why did you say that? I mean, I can imagine Jesus getting, if he were like me anyway, and he's not, thank goodness, very frustrated with these, with these people. Here's my take on why they said this after seeing that. Their bellies are not full anymore. And their minds run back to Moses and the manna. And he didn't do it just once. He did it every day for 40 years. So Jesus, what sign today do you do? This is a new day. We're hungry. That's my take. Now to that, Jesus has a double denial and an amazing offer. Verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So the first denial is Moses wasn't the key player there. My father was. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Here's the second denial. The bread wasn't the point either. There's another kind of bread. It was about pointing somewhere. Do you remember Matthew 4 in the wilderness and the devil tempting Jesus? He quotes, he quotes Deuteronomy about, come on, go ahead, do what happened, make bread. And he says, quoting Deuteronomy 8, 
Man shall not live by bread alone. It, the point wasn't the bread. Every time it came down, it was about God. Every time it came down, it was about the bread that would one day come from heaven. It was about me. And so he says it here pretty, pretty plain and not quite explicitly yet. That's coming. Wasn't Moses who gave you the bread, but my father gives you the true bread. Gives right now is giving you the true bread from heaven. So uh, the point wasn't that bread. The point wasn't that Moses. The point was my father and he's giving bread right now. Please, I've said this. I've showed you. Open your spiritual eyes and see. And here's the amazing offer. I said there were two denials and an amazing offer. Verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, don't miss this. We are talking here about God's offer. Do you see the word you? That's really important. These are really dead, recalcitrant, blind, stiff-necked, hard people. And he's saying, my father is giving you. I just keep standing here and standing here and standing here for you, the elder brother. I just keep coming out on the porch. My father gives you the bread from heaven. Now, most of them are not going to receive it. But Jesus said God is giving it. And that's why I call it an offer. This is viewing everything from the side of man, receiving an offer, being responsible to see it, receive it, eat it. Verse 33 He reinforces this offer amazingly. Look at the scope of verse 33. For the bread of God, so now he underlines what the bread is. It's it's bread of heaven. It's bread of God. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's, That's very broad. He's talking to a little band of people who are tracking him down because he filled their stomachs. And now he's saying, the bread that God sent is the bread by which he gives life to the world. So this is the way I go into the world. This is the way I get on airplanes. This is the way I walk through my neighborhood. God offers Christ to the world freely. And so should we. Come. See. Eat. Freely. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Drink of the water of life without price. That's the way we should talk to the world. Like like Jesus says in verse 33. Now, their response to this is exactly like the woman at the well in chapter 4, verse 15. Here's what she said. Do you remember this? 
Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come draw anymore. She's totally missed it. I have living water. You drink the water that I have to give you, you live forever. She says, whoa, give me the water so that I don't come to the well anymore. Just like them. It's another day. Our bellies are empty. Oh, yes. But what, what is the words that they use? Verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. That just means natural bread. They didn't get it. So Jesus says, now verse 35 is the most explicit statement about his identity with the bread so far in the book. Jesus said to them, this is verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's very hard for me to exaggerate the importance of this verse to me personally over the last 18 years or so, especially since I wrote Future Grace and struggled my way through some pretty significant biblical things to try to understand life, understand God, understand salvation. This verse is pivotal for me. It's pivotal because it defines the object of John Piper's deepest hunger and longing, which is like a Vesuvius of desires. And it's pivotal to me because it defines for me the heart or essence of saving faith. So let me show you those two things. They're pretty obvious. Jesus and all that God is for us in Jesus is what I and you, though you may not know it, most deeply long for, hunger for, thirst for. And he has been merciful to me and most of you to reveal himself as the supreme treasure of the universe. Nothing in the world compares to Jesus. No amount of money, no family, no amount of fame or notoriety, no amount of health or comfort compares with Jesus. Your soul was made for him. Every desire you ever have is an echo of the longing for him. Everybody you'll ever meet was made to be satisfied by Jesus if they knew it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That doesn't mean that once you come to Jesus, your soul never aches for him again. It just means that every day when it does, you know where to go. You're not looking anywhere else anymore. 
You found the end. You found the spring. You found the bakery. And he's it. And of course, desires are new every day. And that's the way it ought to be because otherwise we couldn't enjoy him without ever springing desires. You only like food when you're hungry. So, this is very, very, very profound for me. No verse that I can think of except maybe Philippians 3.8 competes with it. I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That comes close, doesn't it? Maybe even better. But this one, I am the bread of your heart, John Piper. I'm the bread of your life. If you try to eat satisfaction into your soul anywhere else, you will fail. It's me. It's not anybody or anything else. Now, here's the second thing this verse has done for me. It has defined the heart or the essence of what faith is, what saving faith is. Now, notice, this is so important. This is revolutionary. This will change Everything in your life, if you can get a hold of this, or better, it gets a hold of you. So please give me two minutes of unbroken, concerted attention and be saying to your brain, don't put this through the sieve of my Sunday school. Put this through the sieve of the Bible. What is it saying? All right. What is the implication of the two halves of verse 35 coming together? First half. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So the first thing is, I want people to come to me in such a way that their coming is a finding satisfaction in me and their hungers go away for everything else. That's what I'm after in the world. Come, come, come. And of course, you know it has zero to do with geography. Going from there to here isn't it. It's all here. The coming is all here. This is where you turn away from the husks and ashes and the pig pen of the world and you sit down at the banquet table called Jesus. It's all here. No muscles involved at all. So that's the first thing. I'm after people coming coming spiritually from the world to me to drink and eat me to be satisfied in me come, come, come without moving, come and here's the second statement verse 35 and whoever believes in me shall never thirst I don't think those are separate realities. Coming so as not to hunger, believing so as not to thirst are parallel statements. They're not different realities. Like you do one on Friday and you do the other on Saturday. No. Coming so as not to hunger, believing so as not to thirst are the same, which is where I get my definition of believing. I want to know what it is to believe because I'm required to believe in order to be saved. And this world is so full of crazy ideas about what believing is. Believing a doctrine. 
Just believing a fact like he died for your sins? It's not enough. Believing is what happens in the new birth. It's a coming to Jesus in your soul and receiving him as the treasure, water, food, Lord, Savior, everything God is for you in Him, you take Him. I've got you. I receive you. I'm not looking anywhere else. Yes, this is enough. That's faith. Faith is to as many as received Him. To them gave He power to become the children of God. To as many as believed on His name. There's another parallel. Receive and believe. So I'm saying it's coming, it's receiving, it's eating, it's drinking, it's resting, it's enjoying, it's being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. That's huge. That will change everything in your life if you believe what I just said in the last two minutes. You will never read your Bible the same again. You will never think about the obedience of faith the same again. You will never fight for purity and holiness the same again. When you see that saving faith is a being satisfied in all that God is for you in Jesus, then the good fight of faith, which Paul calls it in 1 Timothy 6.12, the good fight of faith becomes a fight for joy. A fight for joy in Christ, not television. In Christ, not sex. In Christ, not money. In Christ, not fame. There's the battle. And it's to be fought every day as we put to death what is earthly in us and all of our cravings for this world and they rise up again and again and they must be killed with this truth. Put to death what is earthly in you. Die every day to the things that will destroy your joy. That changes everything. The way you read your Bible, the way you fight the fight of faith. The fight of faith is the fight for joy. The fight for joy is doing whatever you must to see Jesus for who he is and savor him above all other things. You think those words are just chosen for effect, like seeing and savoring Jesus? I am desperate for language here, for you. Because I know this is going through old sieves. This is being reinterpreted to fit a prior scheme that makes emotions peripheral, makes feelings peripheral, makes satisfaction and joy and peace peripheral. They come later. That's not belonging to the essence. Faith is just this decision. And then you live like the devil for a long, long time and maybe get things straightened out on your deathbed. I was talking to a man like that. It's very scary. It's very scary. When a person has been brought up for decades... And never has heard anything like this. Sat in church all his life. And has never been told you must be born again this way. Been born again. I just had to believe. A fact. I'm born again. (laughs) It's a miracle. You cannot make Jesus beautiful to you. 
You cannot make Jesus more attractive than money. That's a gift. That's a work of God Almighty. This is a miracle. Christianity is not a game. It's not a... So we need to pray earnestly for each other here. For the beginning of life and for the ongoing life. The fight of faith is the fight for joy. The fight for joy is doing whatever you must. Jesus talked about cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye. You just do whatever you must in order to see him as more attractive than anything and savor him above all other desires. That's the goal. That's what faith bores in on, tastes and then pursues the rest of its life. And verse 36 says, they didn't do it. Don't go with them here. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Seeing they did not see, to use another phrase of Jesus. They didn't believe, that is, they didn't come to him for satisfaction in all that God is for them in him. They didn't come. They just stood there watching, thinking about their growling stomachs. Are you there? I hope not. I hope not. God, don't let anybody be there right now. I just went out of here because I'm hungry. Please. So there's the end of section one. God offers his bread to them, to the whole world. They don't receive it or him. And it fails. He fails. God sends him into the world to get eternal life for people. He offers. They don't believe. They perish. And he fails. So it looks. But he's not done. So now let's, let's get into verses 37 to 40. We've just looked at things from the man's side and human responsibility to see what there is to see and respond the way we should respond. And, and there's failure. There's always failure if you only have man. There's always failure if you only have offer. Now... Here's what we're going to do in these last few verses. I see in these verses 37 to 40, five massive assertions concerning God's sovereign work in your salvation. So I'm going to state the, the assertion and then point to the verse. Okay? Assertion number one, God gives his own, or his chosen ones, whatever word you want to use, God gives his own to Jesus. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given to me. God gives a people 
to Jesus. We're going to see this in verse 44. We're going to see this in verse 65. And we see it here very clearly. The Father gives a people to the Son. Assertion number one. Assertion number two. Because God gives them to Jesus, they come. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Or, as Jesus has shown in verse 35, will believe on me. Coming and believing are the same. All that the Father gives to the Son will believe on the Son. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. It's not the other way around. Those whom the Father gives come. Not those who come belong to God. Those whom the Father gives to the Son come to the Son. The giving grounds, supports, enables, empowers, brings the coming. Are you a Christian? Have you come? If so, I'm telling you how you came. God gave you to Jesus. You may have never been taught that and be an absolutely genuine Christian. That's what teaching is for, is to teach us who we are and how we got this way. The simplest non-theologian on the planet can be saved by simply having his eyes open to the beauty of Jesus. I'm coming. Amen. I hardly know who he is, but I'm coming, and he's going to forgive my sins, and I'm going to be his forever. Amen. And then 20 years later, he learns this verse. Oh, that's great. I wondered how I got there. I wonder how that happened to me. I was never taught how that happened. Why I came and Joe didn't. And he hasn't yet. And I don't know why. It's so important that we know. It's going to make praises ascend. It's going to make gratitude ascend. It's going to deepen our sense of security. It's going to release radical Sacrificial acts of risk-taking love to know who you are and how you got that way is so important. So, assertion number two is, because God gives you to Jesus, you came to Jesus. All your resistance was over. And you came freely. People start saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. What about my freedom? I said, well, you're not free. You're slaves of sin, every one of you and me. Unless God breaks in, takes the chains off, opens the door to the cell and opens our eyes, shows us the glory of Jesus, and we freely say, what else would I do? I'm coming to Jesus. It's the freest moment of your life. Everything else is slavery. But this, everything. Assertion number three. 
Those who are given to Jesus and come to Jesus are omnipotently, eternally kept by Jesus. Never lost. Ever. Verse 37, second half of the verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And, here it is, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The giving and the coming are the Father's sovereign work. The keeping is the Son's sovereign work. Jesus is saying, I'll never cast him out. The Father gave him, therefore he came. I'll never lose him. Never. I'm God Almighty, and I will never lose those whom the Father gives to me. You, you wonder how you got to be secure? <laughs> it wasn't because you wake up smart every morning and decide to believe in Jesus. No way. He's got you. Oh, does he have you. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. No one will be lost that the Father gives to the Son. No one. The Father gives us, therefore we come. The Son keeps us, therefore we're never lost. And then one more statement about it in verse 40. The life that He gives us is eternal life in the Son. There's no temporary life that can be lost. This is eternal life. So three times in this unit, seems to be one of the most one of the main points although there's another one I think is even more main one of the main points I won't lose you you come to me I won't ever lose you that's number three here's number four Jesus will raise us up from the dead on the last day and before I read the text let me just give you a little clue here if it puzzles you, maybe reading in Greek, a few dozen of you do that, or just a certain translation, it will look like some of these statements are neuter, not masculine. Everything that the Father gives to me, I will not lose. Like, why do you say that? I'm a person. Because <laughs> we know he's talking about people. And here's a, here's a guess. I think this statement, he wants to say, I won't lose your body either. I won't lose a thing about you, a thing about you that belongs to you. So let me show you the verse. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He really cares about your body. Verse 40, second half of the verse. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Raise it up, raise him up on the last day. 
Now, why the stress on the resurrection here? It just seems to surprise me. He's like, comes out of nowhere. Suddenly, Jesus is not just saying, I'm going to keep you. I've got you. The Father gave you to me. You came to me. I've got you. I'm keeping you. And I'm raising you at the end. Why? And here's, here's my sense. Because if you say to me, Jesus, I'll keep you. I'm looking around and everybody's dying. People die. You're at least losing the body. My soul may fly away to you, but you're losing the body. It's going down there eating by worms, and I don't like that thought at all. And he says, no, I won't lose that body. I don't lose anything about you. Nothing. No thing that belongs to you as you will be lost. I keep my own totally. And if the body in God's providence is designed to lie in the grave for a thousand years, I'm raising it up and I won't forget where it is. Not one millimolecule of it. That's number, number four. Jesus will raise us from the dead. Finally, number five, the unshakable foundation for all of this sovereign work of God is giving us to the Son, our coming to the Son, the Son's keeping of us, the Son's raising of us, all that sovereign, mighty work of God. The unshakable foundation of it is God's sovereign will. Repeated three times. This is more emphasized than anything else, it seems to me, because it's the deepest foundation. And he is about giving you foundations. I'm about giving you foundations. I want you to walk out of here mega confident tonight. Mega strong. Unshakable in your assurance that Jesus has me and never will lose me. All the ups and downs of my life are not in and out of Jesus. No way. So here's number one, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven to do, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now notice, that's the ground. See that word for at the beginning of verse 38? That's the ground of why Jesus won't cast us out. Why won't you cast me out? Because God sent me to do his will. Implication? God's will is that I not be lost. God's will is that his son not lose me. Therefore, the son submits to the will of the Father and says, I won't lose him. But the deeper ground is not Jesus' ability to keep, but God's will that the son not lose us. You can't get deeper than the will of God. There's nothing in the universe deeper or more stable than the will of God. There's nothing behind it. There's no book which he is consulting. There's no counselor he looks to. He is God. Things start there. That's the ultimate foundation. And if he says that ultimate foundation, the sovereign will of God is that my son not lose anybody, my son submits. And he never loses anybody. So number two, verse 39, second statement of it. And this is the 
will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus will not fail because it is God's will that he not fail. It's the will of God. Now, number three is verse 40. This is the will of my father. So if I were you in my Bible, I'd circle will, will, will. This is the will of God. 38, 39, 40. This is the will of my Father, and everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal, not temporary, life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So, God's sovereign will is what grounds our security ultimately. So now we've seen both sections. In the first section, we saw things from the side of man, an offer to the world. Here's my son. Here's the bread. What will you do with him? And they reject him, and it looks like failure. And then, verses 37 to 40, look at it from another side. God's not just offering. If God only offered, everybody would be in hell. God doesn't just offer. God gives. He doesn't just give his son to the world. He gives a people to the son. And when he gives them to the son, they come. And when they come, they stay because Jesus holds them. And when they die, they will be raised at the end and forever we will be with the Lord. The basis of this invincible salvation for his own is his sovereign will. I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, says the Lord. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Last question. If you ask now, as you should, how can I know if I am among those who are his that he gives to the Son. If you want me to put the theological word on it, I will. How can I know I am elect? Actually, it's a very biblical word from Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. But John doesn't use it, so I'm staying away from it. But now you know what he's talking about. He's talking exactly about Romans 8. Those of me for new, predestined, those of me predestined, he called, those of me called, he justified, those of me justified, he glorified, and nobody is lost. This is John's Romans 8.30. How do you know you are elect? And this text is so crystal clear, and the answer is so simple. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. You know that you are given to the Son if you come to the Son. Period. So come. Come. It's like saying, Lazarus? Come forth. 
Awaken to the supreme glory of Jesus. Wake up by the power of the Holy Spirit. See. Eat. Drink. If you drink, you're given. If you eat, you're given. If you come, you're given. If you believe, you're given. And I would say, in closing, this book, I think, John, is written mainly for believers. I'll make a case for that as we go along. So if you, you're sitting there thinking, oh, he's trying to get unbelievers to get saved right now. Well, yes, I am. Indeed, I am. I want that to happen now in this room. But more central to this book is that there are many people who follow him, are called disciples, are called believers in this book who go away from him. They will in verse 66. Everybody in this crowd, some of them called disciples, will follow him no more. Called disciples. This is about me preaching to a church full of believers trying to help you see Jesus. Because it's by seeing him that we admire him, treasure him, feed on him, drink from him, and thus And you know you're his if you do. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that for those who are hearing these pretty straightforward teachings of the Gospel of John, perhaps for the first time, would find welling up within their souls. Could it be that good? Could I be that secure? Could I be that fearless that I'll never be thrown away? Is that possible to walk there? I pray that they would. I pray that I would. I pray that as Thanksgiving comes, I would rise up fresh with my heart brimming with gratitude that I've been given to Jesus and therefore came to Jesus and will be kept by Jesus and raised by Jesus and therefore see Jesus as the best treasure in the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.